Hi, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Tim. And this is the Classical Music Pod. We're back after a week-long pleasure cruise with Seaborn Freight and Chris Grayling. We've got a goodie bag full of podcast treats. That's right, we've got Musical Merry Men. An interview with Nick Mulroy. And one half of Classical Music's most famous composing couple. Ebony and Ivory go together in perfect harmony. So said Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. They sure did. Beautiful song. Really bad song. Bad news if you own an instrument that includes a little bit of ivory. Sarah Buchanan of the Amati Auction House has tried to help you out by sending the UK government a petition asking for those instruments to be exempt from the forthcoming Ivory Act. It will limit the trade of antique instruments that include little bits of ivory. Yep, she said we fully support the ethics behind the Act. Endangered species and ecosystems must be protected, but these legitimate goals cannot be achieved by clamping down on antique instruments and bows. To me, this feels like a bit of a no-brainer. Obviously, it's a really good thing to limit the trade of ivory. We don't want any more fresh ivory being brought into this country. However, these old instruments are part of musicians' retirement plans, selling on those kind of instruments. Also, if you're an up-and-coming player and you need to get hold of a brand-new high-end bow, making things any more difficult for you is a real shame. And I agree with that, but I do have a small problem in that by having exceptions to the Ivory Act, especially within a tool that's used for creating music... I wonder whether we allow musicians to glamorise and even legitimise ivory as a material, even if that's not what they're intending, in much the same way as potential film stars smoking on set to look cool. It glamorises something, and we know it's bad for us, but it legitimises it for us. Yeah, I hear you, Tim. I do. Talking of film stars, this week there was the Oscars, and the Oscar for Best Soundtrack went to a newcomer. It was Ludwig Göransson, presumably the son of Göran, and his soundtrack to the Black Panther film. It's really great to see someone who is a bit of an outsider winning. It's often a bit of a stitch-up between sort of John Williams, Alan Menken, Hans Zimmer, and one of this year's uh, nominees, Alexandra Desplat, who also didn't win, but wrote a great soundtrack for Isle of Dogs. Happy birthday to Henry Wood, who would have been 150 years old today. Happy birthday, Henry! I'm sure he would have disapproved this week of the sale of the tickets for the last night of the proms, which were up on Viagogo, the resale website, this week for £947 in the stores, or £1,786 for a second-tier box, which is, fair to say, not why he founded a classical music festival. No, it's a disgusting amount of money. It's not the first time that this has happened. The Royal Opera House's tickets for Forza del Destino were up on Via Gogo for over £3,000. So that's a real exclusionary amount of money. No one's going to enjoy that. Especially for the last night of the proms, which is probably the last night of the proms I would want to go to. Yeah, it's jingoistic faff. Silly. Two good pieces of news from the operatic world. Yes, Angel Blue has been cast as the first non-white Violetta. She's replacing Sonia Yoncheva, who has cancelled performing in La Traviata at La Scala in March. Blue has posted a beaming photograph on Twitter and apologised for having to cancel a recital at UCLA. This is awesome news, and hopefully we can tick a few more rolls off like this. It's only 156 years into the history of this particular piece to get to this point. Another piece of positive history being made this month. Trans baritone Lucia Lucas has been cast in the title role in Don Giovanni in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, Oklahoma. The opera's artistic director, Tobias Picker, said, 
Uh, Lucas's appearance here will mark the first time a trans woman has performed a principal role on the operatic stage in the United States. Fab, Tim, I don't know if you have ever wanted to lead the Philharmonia Orchestra. No, I'm not a violinist. It feels like quite a high-pressure gig if you're not. Mm. But if you are thinking of auditioning, I can tell you what is going to come up in your 45-minute leader audition. You're going to have to play extracts from two concertos, seven solo extracts from within symphonies, and then three extracts without anyone accompanying you. That's a huge amount of music. It's a huge amount of music, and it goes through Beethoven, Strauss, Rimsky, Korskov, Vorjak, Shostakovich, but nothing contemporary, because as we all know, music stopped being composed in 1981. On the subject of auditions, congratulations to Mary Furillo, the daughter of Principal Oberst for the BSO, the Boston Symphony, John Furillo. So she's won a spot in the viola section of the same orchestra after her 22nd audition. 22nd? Yeah, so she's that's across the US rather than just for the Boston Symphony. Wow, okay. So she played three rounds on Monday over a 12-hour period to get the spot. Yikes. And her dad left a very touching message on Facebook and he went, I don't want to go all Facebook on you, but I simply must share a great joy. And then he revealed the news and it was rather oh, touching. I loved your accent there. Not Thank particularly you. Boston, but, you know, very, very fun. If you're interested in audition processes, we're going to link an article in the description here uh, from Boston Magazine a couple of years ago, which followed a percussionist as he tried to join the BSO. And it has a wonderful idea at its core of this player wanting to either be good enough or to lose the urge to be involved. And I think a lot of creative people will empathise with him there. Absolutely. Do you know if he ever got into the... Well, no spoilers, Tim. A real clangor this week from the Strad magazine, who've published an article littered with sweeping generalisations by Victoria Elizabeth Kaunzner, a violinist who spent many years teaching in South Korea. Yeah, she talks about tiger moms who videotape lessons and ambitiously review them with their child at home. And some parents of female instrumentalists are working on the agenda of acquiring suitable husbands for their daughters. Mm, not sure about that one, Victoria. Perhaps the workforce at the Strad aren't quite diverse enough. No, this is uh, not the first example of a music, a classical music magazine making a similar faux pas. Let me refer you to the June issue, I believe, of Pianist magazine that was advertising hot tips for fingering. Mmm, a little bit Cosmo there. And finally, a sad bit of news. The death of great conductor and polymath Andre Previn this week. He uh, was a real inspiration to both of us and his ability to move seamlessly between being a film composer in his youth, winning an Oscar for My Fair Lady to conducting the LSO, to hanging out with Oscar Peterson. To, I mean, he just did everything. He was hilarious with Morecambe and Wise as well, as we all fondly remember. Uh, I think both of us wish there were more people able to be advocates for music in Absolutely. such a way. One of my favourite anecdotes of his is when Dame Janet Baker cancelled a last-minute LSO concert. And to fill the gap in the, in the programme, Previn turned around and said, well, let's just do the Gershwin concerto. And if the soloist fails to show, then... I can always play the solo. Beautiful little quote from him to end on here. A day without music is a day wasted. Thank you.
that was a little bit of the brand spanking new Robin Hood opera written by Danny Howard. We went to see it on Wednesday night, the world premiere from the opera story in Peckham's Bussy Building. The character Robin Hood is reimagined as a Bullingdon-esque politician stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, or at least so he says. Age-old themes of loyalty, brotherhood and morality are explored, as are the hypocrisies of the political elite. We see the cycles of injustice that a patriarchal society can engender played out through a familiar myth. Tim, you went to talk to Danny Howard, the composer, about all of this. So, awesome. Danny Howard. Yes, hi. It's a pleasure to be here on this balmy February yeah. evening, slightly <laughs> bizarre, brilliant. on the opening night of Robin Hood. Yes. Which you have composed. Yes, I have. Which is really <laughs> exciting. So, Robin Hood, I'm, am I right in thinking this is the big, the biggest project you've ever yes. undertaken? Absolutely, yes. Um, would you be able to explain what your tactics were for stepping up to something yeah. that, of that size? Did you have a plan or a...? Yeah, I, I kind of had to because the way I normally work is mainly in my head before, in terms of structure, figuring out structure is always in my head and this piece was just simply too long to figure it all out in, in my head. Mm. I just couldn't hold 90 minutes of, yeah. of time um, like that. Yeah, so I, I basically just had to break it down into acts and scenes and tackle it one by one, basically. Yeah. It was, I kind of looked at the whole libretto, which was brilliant, and highlighted all the major moments. And I started there, I started in the major moments, and then everything else was based on things from the major moments. It's quite granular then, the process. Yeah, in, in terms of either, either doing a precursor to it, to build up to it, or following on from it. and mm. and. It's like chipping away at a big, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, bit by bit. And you yeah. mentioned the libretto, so that's by yes. uh, Zoe Palmer and Rebecca Hurst. Yes. Yeah. And what I was interested in, interested in was whether that lent itself to music. It absolutely did. I was yeah. amazed um, because I, I've worked with choral music before, but not so much. And it was, I had spoken to them at length, and they had listened to my music a lot. And I did tell them, you know, I love rhythmic things, and I love repetition, and and they basically wrote a libretto that lent itself to that. They they included a lot of things that were very obviously able to be repeated, and um, just just the the sound of the diction was yeah. very. A lot of it was very rhythmic. And that must have been a real pleasure. To yeah, it was fantastic. So when I whenever I was stuck. I found the words actually told me what I needed to do in many ways, oh, that's um, which was really nice. So, well, well, we're in Peckham's Bussy Building, which yes. I, I was last here for like a, an all night rave, <laughs> rave yeah, yeah. which is great. But did, when you were writing, <laughs> when you were writing, um, when you were writing Robin Hood, did you have the building in mind? As... Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We did a site visit very early on, oh, so really? I knew exactly where it was going to be. And I kept that in mind for sure. Um, I knew it would be a very intimate space, not huge, and also it was going to be in the round, so so audience surrounding 360, mm. the, what's going on on stage, as opposed to audience yeah. stage. Um, and that, I think, made a big difference to how... It's difficult. It, it's difficult. It's more how I am... In, it's hard to say how specific... I did it to that, but it certainly influenced yeah. 
the mood of it. I mean, sometimes they, if it's for commission, I usually like knowing, but I also yeah. like thinking ahead into the future yeah. and not just writing a piece just for yeah, one venue. But with this, it seemed really relevant yeah. to blend the two. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was interested to read that you'd um, you'd been working on the school for Michael. Is it Michael Kamen? Michael Kamen, yes. The Robin, so he did Prince of Thieves back in yes. 90, whenever it was. Yeah, yeah. And that's amazing, one, of, I mean, one of the amazing coincidences, apart from anything. But it was, also, yeah. Did, did you find that, that that music, because you were working, was it the orchestration? Yeah, I was engraving it, basically. Engra- right, okay, and yeah. yeah um, so engraving all the suites yeah. from it. So yeah. I was working, I had to input all the handwritten uh, scores. Did you find that it infiltrated into your own... Um, or not? I mean, well, it, it influenced me in the sense that I loved the story and therefore went to watch the movie again. Um, but I did try really hard not to yeah. to listen to it, and I think he did an amazing job. It's a yeah. brilliant film, but also needing to know that opera is different to film, and um, yeah. so I wouldn't say any specific things musically were yeah. ca- came from that, but certainly the the love of the story yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you so much for yeah, no, that's coming and right. talking to us i wish you all the best i'm sure it'll go wonderfully thank you so much thank fingers so crossed much. yeah yes Great. brilliant also this week verdi's aida has opened at the met john adams girl of the golden west at the dutch national opera and donizetti's lucia de la memoire at the zurich opera house these are lovely bits of news tim but why are you sharing them so these are three operas about women written by men with entirely male production teams. So I was really pleased to open the programme at Roman Hood and see the composer, the librettists, the director, the artistic mm. director, they were all women. And it felt like a really healthy redressing of creative power in opera. Yeah, I'm with you there. That said, what did you think about the result? Similarly, uh, I totally admire the processes at work there. The output, I think, is also a great thing. They've made something new and it's got so much to admire. I also enjoy any night out where the founder of the opera company is the person giving you a programme. I think it's a really uh, warm introduction to the to the night. Yeah, so this is the opera story, which has been about for three years. This is their third production now. Third production, three new commissions as well. So they are investing in making new things. And hats off to people like the singers on stage memorising, learning a whole new opera. And actually, it didn't feel at any point like it was going to go wrong. Everyone involved had worked really hard to make it feel comfortable, seamless. They were just telling the story. Mm. It was polished. Yeah, a really high standard of, of production. The composing, I thought, was of a really high standard, particularly the orchestration, actually was a real asset to the whole production. And I know you're one of telling me a bit more about the specifics of that, but it, it gave me an effect of feeling really present, really in it music. It's happening right now. You're not able to step outside it and reflect on it. It's really um, visceral. Several of the singers really helped with that. Nicholas Merriweather singing Robin, Oliver Brignall as Little John, and Lorna Anderson as Joanna all embodied their voices. So there's no point where you're thinking, oh, that person's singing. It's just, it's happening. That's how the story's being told. That's the medium that we're in. And so those three in particular stood out for me. It's worth mentioning as well that there was quite a lot of shifting between talking and singing, and at mm. no point did it feel clunky. No, not like bad Western musicals. No, exactly. It wasn't, or, or a Handel aria. Yeah. I'm singing now. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first opera that Danny's written. How did you enjoy the construction of the score? I thought it was clever in that it subtly reflected these themes of cyclical injustice mm. that were going on in the libretto with its use of repetition in melody. Yeah. It was quite post-minimalist, I suppose you'd call it. I agree. It reminded me of the music of Jonathan Dove and in, in some parts, Sondheimers, because it was also very accessible. 
So Danny uses melodies, she assigns melodies to particular characters and then develops these melodies throughout the opera. So, for example, Robin Hood, as the guilt of killing a small boy begins to build up inside him, mm. his melody is warped in much the same way that the Marlowe theme in Turn of the Screw is warped as the ghost of Peter Quint takes over Miles. Mm. And I thought there were a lot of similarities between Britain's use of a very sweet melody underpinned by some subversive harmonic disruptions and interesting grinding orchestrations underneath yeah. it. So you're kind of at a lot, uh, you're not sure whether what's happening is very gentle and sweet or actually is, is this very sinister? And it turns out, it, yeah, it is very sinister. Yeah, I mean, I went and saw If Beale Street Could Talk this week and uh, a lot of that film involves feeling what's going on inside someone's head. And again, the score does that. I felt the similar effect going on in the opera that the orchestra was telling us someone's inner monologue whilst they were saying something else, which is quite a sometime Absolutely, yeah. And actually the orchestral playing was really fine, I thought, particularly bass clarinet. I was very happy to see Ryan Linham's name on the trumpet seat. Anything with him in is going to be fantastic. Uh, and our percussionist earned his money. He did some absolutely top work. Lots of bowed percussion, which I particularly enjoyed. Yeah, top colours being used. Beautiful orchestration. I spoke to Danny in the interview that we've just heard, but I also caught her after the show and I, and I said, oh, I really loved this bit where the double bass was playing, double stopped, rattling mm. really deep down and then the bass clarinet joined in and then the bass drum and it's a really thick, almost flabby texture. I think that perfectly fitted with what was going on in the drama at the time where Robin, mm. it was dawning on him that this guilt is going to overtake him and force him to take his own life in the end, which he does. And, and it feels like the pit of his stomach is just groaning and it perfectly yeah. embodied that that sound and i caught danny artist she said she, she wrote that because she found it she was staying at a friend's house with a double bass <laughs> and so she just had hours and hours with this double bass and she had the opportunity to experiment any reservations uh i uh, few few which is pretty good from me i thought that the fact that we moved room between the two halves we went from upstairs to downstairs didn't really add anything and if I was paying £25 a ticket, which we weren't because we had nice press tickets, but if I was paying £25 to sit on the floor, I might not be totally satisfied about that. Yeah, I can understand. So for me, it was the novelty that made it exciting. And I think perhaps if I were to go and watch an opera again where you're required to move rooms for the third act, I would want it to add more to the drama. But this time I felt quite happy just being excited that I was stood up and next to the next to Robin singing. Yeah, I mean, he was right on top of us. In the first yeah. half, we were laughing at the, um, the the couple opposite who looked quite disgruntled at having characters sat next to them. Yeah. And uh, then in the second half, I felt very self-conscious that, that, <laughs> that people must be thinking exactly. the same about us. But that that visceral aspect and being really immersed into the drama, I think, I, I mean, I really enjoy. And mm. I think that added to it, actually. Yeah, and one of the things that I was scared about looking at the uh, synopsis before we turned up was that this House of Commons... Uh, aspect where they are debating one another was going to be poorly realized because you only had so few characters but the fact that we filled out those on the benches was actually a really good use of that space uh, and a way of bringing the politics in nicely i thought analysis We've had another letter. How exciting. This is from Emma in Cambridge, asking if we can analyse Clara Schumann's piano trio in G minor. Mm -hmm. Emma's pupils are studying the work at the moment for A-level, and it was actually only added to the syllabus after a 2015 campaign led by the student Jess McCabe, who was 17 at the time. Here's the opening of the first movement played by the Gallus Trio. Mm -hmm. 
This piece was written in 1846 for Clara to play at the piano alongside a violinist and a cellist. The piano trio was an enormously popular genre during the 19th century, and Clara was able to tour hers around Europe whilst playing works by Beethoven, Mozart and Schubert. Was this in the period of the Salon? Absolutely, but actually also in the concert hall. She did both. In listening to this work, and others by her this week, I was reminded of Tim Henman and his prime, Tim. Mm. He, uh, he and she both use so much variety, and it's all deployed judiciously in a well-balanced way to achieve the same satisfying outcome every time. There's a sort of fizzing serve and volley one minute, a sweeping violin melody the next, a luxurious backhand down the line with a delightful syncopated piano accompaniment. Then, of course, an exit at either quarter or semi-final to a charming Eastern European wildcard. Fun fact, Clara was actually a very good tennis player herself. Really? No, absolutely not. It's not true. Clara is actually so consummate on all fronts that she really reminds me of Liverpool defender Virgil van Dijk, but I'll come to that in a little bit. She's so balanced in everything that she does, and it's audible throughout the piece. Can you give me some examples? Of course. So right from the off, she introduces a theme which is harmonically balanced, has an equal portion of two different textures, and gives us what we want, as well as a few surprises. Bars 1 to 4 are a predictable harmonic opening, 1 to 5. Then bars 5 to 8 close that harmonic door, going from 5 to 1. That's very functional composing. But there's also balance in other factors, like melodic construction and accompaniment textures. The first phrase has this distinctive descending fifth figure, accompanied by rippling piano legato chords. The second has a more cellular melody, which opens with an ascending sequence and has a pub piano-style offbeat chordal accompaniment. Two different but similar parts that complement one another. A repetition of all this material together forms the first subject, but it's not a straight repetition. Like all great sequels, Clara gives us a little of what we know and some magical stuff we didn't know we wanted. Like Toy Story 2, where we didn't know we wanted a five-minute sequence about an abandoned cowgirl, but we wept through it because it's perfect. When somebody loved me Everything was beautiful Clara introduces new elements in her sequel to the first theme, including, most obviously, a cello part now playing a counter-melody, a fruity augmented sixth chord in bar 11, an expansion of the melodic range via an octave leap, and a cheeky descending bass line in bar 18. It sounds like this. transition section, starting at bar 22, is also balanced. The first part, unanimous and homorhythmic. The second part is offbeat and questioning, doubtful even. One character, but with a pair of golem-like personalities. Clara shows she can mix it with the best of the 19th centurions during the second subject. A first phrase that's syncopated, chordal and reverential in tone, 
Brahms wrote fistful of these during his beard-growing years. But the second half of the theme is a diminished seventh, tumescent with repressed Beethovenian driving motion. She manages these perfectly paired marriages throughout the work, and also factors in equal shares of convention and flair. For instance, as the exposition comes to an end, convention dictates that she has to have an obvious closing cadence. But Clara, being an innovator, doesn't just settle for 5-1. Too obvious, we've seen it already. Instead, she pops in a dominant minor ninth. Sexy. It gives a sweet harmonic advert to the end of that first section. In the development, she balances three competing concerns. The desire to have tonal time away from the home key, the aim of heightening the drama, and the hope of having an organic return to that original material. The familiar element of the opening motif is used throughout in the cello and violin, but now in a texture of counterpoint, and with occasional tweaks to stretch into new keys. The added factor Clara includes here is that she draws the two string parts closer together, heightening the drama. Just before the return of the exposition's original material in bar 220, there's a bit of musical sleight of hand. We think we're focusing on a moment of piano virtuosity, as tricky figures in the right hand overlay the opening theme being heard in the bass. But actually, the string's dominant pedal, hanging there on the fifth of that home key, means that when we return to the opening, it feels totally seamless. She uses material we know to distract us from the preparation of the music we didn't realise we'd been missing. There's a similar distraction going on at the very end. We think we're hearing an unexpected chord progression, a plagal cadence, that's the Amen one. Interspersed with diminished chords, there's actually a pedal point on G, the tonic, being played throughout. This means that when we arrive at the end, it feels prepared, even though we haven't noticed that preparation going on. So for those of you who don't know who Virgil van Dijk is, he's a defender for Liverpool, the most expensive defender in the world, and playing against him was described by Watford striker Troy Deeney as a hate going up against him. He's too big, too strong, too quick, too good on the ball, loves fighting, and has a good smelling head of hair. Clara's composing is a bit like this. If you want to get physical and aggressive, she can write driving figures full of virtuosity. If you want something broad and appealing, she can write a memorable tune and accompany it in such a way that amateurs could practice it. But she's also a virtuoso performer, taking this work on the road, around Europe, playing it with the leading violinist and cellist of the day. She's also a composer cranking it out when she's bedridden with this, her fourth pregnancy. She's a mother of eight, but also a breadwinner and a carer to her ill husband. She did it all and combined each of her polymathematical talents in this, her piano trio. However... I can't attest to how her hair smells. You're a liar. Composer Fact File, Clara Schumann. 
Born 1819 into a family of professional musicians living in Leipzig. Played 1,299 programmed concerts across a 60-year career. Destroyed over 20 works because she thought they showed evidence of insanity. She had eight children, four of whom survived to adulthood. One of the first soloists to perform from memory. Performed with violin virtuoso Paganini in Paris, but few heard it as the city's population fled a cholera outbreak. Married to Robert Schumann, her father's piano pupil. The marriage was against her family's wishes, and they were all taken to court. She composed nothing after the age of 36. A great champion of the younger composer Brahms, who would later declare his love to her. She said of her own music, A woman must not wish to compose. There never was one able to do it. Am I intended to be the one? It would be arrogant to believe that. We were away one extra week, and I know you missed us, but we were actually performing live down in Crystal Palace, doing a programme of Jeff Buckley and John Dowland together for Classical Transmission, a new concert series put together by Nick Mulroy. Tim, you took the chance to have a chat to him. I did. I called up with Nick over a coffee last week in Brixton, and it was great to chat to him. It's very easy to forget that he's one of the foremost tenors in Europe, really. He's worked with some of the best people in business, John Elliott Gardner, John Butt, Stephen Layton. He sung with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, BBC Philharmonic, Britain Symphony, you name it. He's also recorded a gramophone award-winning disc of Handel's Messiah. So it was lovely to have the opportunity to speak to him about the work he's doing in Crystal Palace. <laughs> uh, right. I'm here with Nicholas Mulroy. He's come to meet me for a coffee. Morning. In lovely Brixton, on a slightly miserable day. Nicholas, or Nick, what would you prefer? Nick, it's fine. Nick. Yeah. So you run Classical Transmission. That's right, yeah. Do you think you could tell us a bit about Classical Transmission and what you're trying to do with it? Yeah, absolutely. It came from came about from a variety of reasons, really. Conversations with a few colleagues and friends who had programmes ready to go that didn't necessarily fit really comfortably into, into traditional programming, let's say. So I, for example, had a programme of mixing kind of Monteverdi and Purcell early song with sort of 20th century Latin American troubadour-style mm. stuff. Uh, another friend had a, had a really mixed programme of Schubert, Bach and Nick Drake and Shirley Bassey. And so I sort of wanted to, wanted to start something whereby people could do that, uh, whereby, you know, musicians, of which there are so many in that area, like thousands, I think, of really good musicians live within a sort of stone's throw of, of the top of the hill there in Crystal Palace, and also give the community, you know, some really classy music, to come and listen to and the, the final thing really which I guess is the most important is that all the proceeds go to charity so all the performers come uh, out of the kindness of their own hearts and, and we've raised so far getting on for £4,000 which is and that's for Arts Emergency isn't it? the, the latest charity is Arts Emergency who do brilliant work and the previous one was a charity called Phone Credit for Refugees which gave um, well kind of did what it said in the tin and gave refugees particularly in the Calais jungle as was some, fo- some credit for their phones so they could stay in touch with their families which I think was a really uh, you know £10 gave yeah. so one person coming in gave gave someone the possibility of telling their family they were okay which was a nice yeah. thing to, to do and, and arts emergency is that something that you have a particular affinity with or is it just something that you well I, 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think we're all lucky, those of us who do music. Along the way, we've had access to music, firstly, but also access to to the education of it and also to to the networks whereby we mm. we become musicians, you know, yeah. to, to, to learn from people that we can play and sing with. Uh, and I, I was watching one of the, I think Stuart Lee does a video on the, on the website there, Arts Emergency, saying that sort of social mobility within creative profession is as low as it's ever been, since mm. at least since the war. Yeah. Which to me is kind of not surprising, but I think quite depressing. Yes. So it's, it's something that I think, you know, if, if we can do a little bit to help people who might not otherwise have the, the access to the sort of old boys network mm. you know because I think talent is kind of distributed equally but perhaps opportunity isn't these yeah, days and I, I think it try, contract that is, is useful I think. So you grew up in Liverpool? Yes. Was there anybody in your musical upbringing that, that, that helped you tap into that network? Was there anybody? Yeah I guess I mean I, I was really lucky I was a chorister at the Metropolitan Cathedral mm. with a guy called Philip Duffy who ran the music there and his brother played the organ um, and they were brilliant and there's lots of well a few of us at least from that uh, world who are still in the in the business uh, had a really good music department at the school as well a great teacher called John Mosley who was 70 yesterday and just you know I, I can't pretend I come from anything like a low you know an underprivileged background I was I was lucky to be you know well educated and yeah. feel lucky to have to have been offered the chance to yeah. to get into and know music in the way that I do I really I suppose being a chorister is, I, John Rusher he did a tweet the other day just advertising some positions for choristers I can't remember which, which cathedral it was and he was saying this is probably one of the best opportunities a young musician from a lower socio-economic background would have to break into that world yeah You're it's right. so true I mean uh, it's a real cliche but music is like ultimately you know the ultimate democracy it's for everyone yeah. we can all hear it we can all do it given the chance and, and in Liverpool the same we had you know people from really you know not great not not well uh, provided backgrounds, who through that were able to get a musical education, get a better education as well. Mm. Uh, one of them's a guy who plays the clarinet in the in the army orchestra at the moment, and you know he would, I don't know, you know who knows where he'd been had he not had that education. It's, yeah. a, it would, it's for sure changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of kids over the years. Yeah. So um, it's a horrible subject to bridge, but <laughs> we. We interviewed, or we, I spoke to Simon Wolfish. I don't know if you've come across yes, him. Yes, I know, yeah, yeah. You know Simon, a couple of weeks ago. So I don't know if you knew, but he's been protesting outside Westminster. Uh, and as a musician, he's obviously concerned about the impact that Brexit's going to have. And, and obviously not just on his on musical life as well, it's just something that he believes in. Are, are you, did you have any worries about having freedom of movement limited? Is that going to affect your career in any way? It has the potential to hugely, yeah. I mean, I, I work. I don't. I've never really sat down and worked it out, but I think definitely a, a large proportion of my work is on the is in continental Europe. Not least because there's just more opportunity than there is in one single country. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to get to. It's it's a two-hour flight, maybe two and a half hours maximum mm. to anywhere in Europe. Um, and also, you know, I really cherish the relationships I've developed over the years with uh, groups in continental Europe and with yeah. musicians there. So it's a real concern. I mean, nobody seems to know, yeah. apart from anything else, what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Which I find at this stage, where I'll be less than a month away. Yeah, it's, it's exactly a month. It's the end of the month. Yeah, yeah. Four yes. weeks today. Yeah. And nobody really. I mean, I, I, I'm supposed to go away. I'm supposed to have a concert in Paris on the 29th, which is the day, mm. uh, and I'm supposed to then go on a tour in Spain the following week. Uh, and nobody can really tell me whether that's yeah. that's something I'm able to do, which I find sad, but also baffling and a little yeah. bit. 
uh, maddening. Yeah. Not ju- it's not just the arts either, is it? But for, for, for people for whom this kind of nitty gritty, just simple detail of being able to do your work mm. doesn't seem to be a priority. So. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nicholas, for coming and sitting in a cafe with me. The, sun's actually, come the out. sun has just come out like, as, if by magic. as if to counteract our Brexit. <laughs> That's right. Started talking about <laughs> lack of freedom of movement and then the sun came. So let's look ahead to the week coming. Yeah, we've got the Oslo Philharmonic Orchestra on tour around the UK all week. They're not an orchestra we often get to see, so if the chance arises near you, seek them out. Tuesday the 5th is Iran's National Tree Planting Day. Of course it is. There you go. It's also the day that Madeleine Mitchell is putting on a concert called A Century of Women Composers at the University Women's Club in London. And they're putting on Lily Boulanger, Amy Beach, Judith Weir, Rebecca Clark. That'd be great. And with Keris Jones playing the violin. And that's also happening at the Dora Stutzka Hall in Cardiff on the 8th, on the Friday. I didn't realise it's also the anniversary of when the Royal Opera House burnt down, which is in 1856. Wednesday the 6th, as well as being Ghanaian Independence Day, the Oxford Philharmonic are with Carmine Lowry on the violin are playing Korngold's Violin Concerto in D, which is mm. one of my favourite violin concertos. Very scrummy indeed. It's also the anniversary of the first performance of La Traviata that we were talking about earlier. Thursday the 7th in Salford, Opera North, are performing the very well-reviewed Katia Kabnova, Janacek. Janacek, a anti-prodigy. He didn't write anything of note until he was about 65. Mm, there we go. It's also Maurice Ravel's birthday. He was born in Basque in 1875. Other birthdays that day include Brian Cranston, Rachel Weiss, and Jordan Pickford, the England goalkeeper. Very good. On Friday the 8th, International Women's Day, the Philharmonia are celebrating by performing the Berlioz Requiem, a work by a man in St Paul's Cathedral, a building named after a man, being conducted by John Nelson, a man. And it's also the anniversary of the death of Sir William Walton, who's actually a really great British composer and uh, a guy who lived on an island off uh, Naples. I didn't know that until you've been. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. I'm actually going to see the BBC Singers and Caban 2 on Friday night. And they they take folk music from lots of different cultures around the world and mix it together, and that's going to be down at the Cutty Sark. I'm looking forward to that. If you're there, do say hello. And on Saturday the 9th, we've got a really good one to take the kids to if you are anywhere near Reading. The Royal Phil are putting noisy kids, heroes and villains together. It's sort of Star Wars, Romeo and Juliet, Jurassic Park, Dance Macabre, all the sort of tub-thumping tunes that anyone young and into classical music would really enjoy. Absolutely. So that's at 11.30 in the morning and then in the evening they are putting on a programme, a slightly more serious programme, Sibelius's Corellia Suite and Mozart's third violin concerto with Jennifer Pike. And that's, incidentally, 70 years since the Barbie doll made its first appearance at the American International Toy Fair. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more of it, then like us and subscribe to us. That's quite aggressive, Tim. I really enjoyed the tone on that. It's great. Uh, Please do also write us letters. They don't have to be aggressive in tone, but they do make us feel a little bit more connected to everybody who's listening. You can contact us at theclassicalmusicpod at gmail.com or send us a Facebook message. We've got a couple of thank yous. Very big thank you to the Gallus Trio for playing so beautifully on that recording and letting us use it. They'll be bringing out a 
new commercially available recording of the Clara Schumann Piano Trio in a couple of weeks' time, so keep your eyes open for that one. And thank you very much to The Opera Story and Danny Howard for having a chat with us. And of course to Nick Mulroy for being such a top bloke. And to Tim Hemman for his service to tennis. Good.